You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 31. The Quiz Night. A beer mat from the Phoenix Downstairs Club in London. It has, amazingly, lasted over two decades and still occasionally sits under a mug of tea on my desk. As I grow older, my strengths and weaknesses become more defined along with a sanguine acceptance of both. When it came to team sports, I was that perennial childhood cliché, the kid always picked last, enduring that rarely discussed torment when both sides already had equal numbers. I cannot be trusted with painting, or decorating, or carpentry. I cannot legally drive. But on the plus side, you simply have to take my word for it when I say that you would want me on your quiz team. If you need someone to scribble down from memory the first five James Bond novels or the noble elements of the periodic table in order of atomic number, then trust me, I'm your man. Regular listeners will already know about my captaincy of a university challenge team, along with a family tradition of TV quiz success from which this arose. The bottom line is that I have, with an astonishing regularity, helped pub quiz teams achieve the Corinthian heights of winning enough money for an extra round before the bar staff call time. And therein lay the problem. If my skills at poker were as keen as my knowledge of Marx Brothers films, I would by now be on the next plane to join a high-stakes table in Vegas. Yes, I know, there are already TV shows offering big money for this kind of thing, but both personal anxiety and their often arbitrary nature, have so far dissuaded me from applying. I simply wanted a normal pub quiz, where the prize extended to more than five pints of London pride. Where were the big money games? Or in the words of Nicely Nicely and Guys and Dolls, where's the action? The Phoenix downstairs sits underneath the Phoenix Theatre on London's Charing Cross Road. It's a membership club that bears no relation to the Garrick, or, heaven help us, the Groucho Club. But for anyone working in entertainment during the 1990s, it was a friendly watering hole that served beer after 11pm, back in the days when licensing laws meant you couldn't get a late-night drink. By 2002, I was no longer performing, so I rarely visited the place. That was until my friend Mick invited me to join his quiz team, because the Phoenix was now running a monthly quiz night with a £600 winner-takes-all prize. Turning up for the first night, I discovered that such a big event was a honeypot for the know-all end of the chattering classes. In the large Phoenix bar, I recognised a Guardian columnist table, a BBC Light Entertainment table, a Cambridge Footlights reunion table, and the office table, containing various members of the cast. It should be remembered that at this moment, the office was the hottest property on British television, getting deservedly rave reviews, must-watch recommendations, as well as inspiring scholarly articles in the broadsheets about the shortcomings of middle management. Its co-creator and star, Ricky Gervais, was well on his way to national treasure status, because, to be fair, both the sitcom and its main character, David Brent, were brilliant creations. 
Quiz nights are now a regular fixture of most organisations' social calendar or pub's weekly schedule. Anybody who's attended one will be familiar with the section where the answers are read out. You'll hear good-natured cheering from tables when they get a correct answer, more so if it's a lucky guess. And you'll hear collective groans about wrong answers or near misses. Despite the £600 jackpot, this night was no different, with one exception. A member of the office table began to be particularly disruptive, and soon the whole room endured Ricky Gervais, red-faced with anger as he protested each answer. When the MC reached the answer to the question, Name the mad scientist who regularly featured in The Muppet Show, he bellowed that the correct answer was not Dr Honeydew, but Dr Bunsen Honeydew, and that anyone who didn't give his full name shouldn't be awarded a point. The rest of his table did their best to calm him down, but he wouldn't let it go, until the quizmaster called for silence. As devotees of the office are aware, one of its more celebrated episodes actually features a quiz night, where David Brent and his friend Chris Finch, the only genuinely nasty character in the series, similarly lose their call over being on a losing team. Many in the room might have viewed Gervais's behaviour as a piece of clever performance art, channelling the events of that quiz night episode for the amusement of his friends. But from the way he wouldn't let up, it was clear that there was something darker at work. My team won the £600 winner-takes-all jackpot because, well, as I've already explained, you would want me on your quiz team. After a short hiatus, a man came over with a jiffy bag full of £10 notes, which, after getting a celebratory round in, we proceeded to divvy up. There we were, with four growing piles of tenors on our table, when we sensed someone standing motionless over us. We looked up to see a scowling Ricky Gervais. Look at you, he contemptuously spat. Bunch of Shylocks counting out your money, before stomping off. He said the last part with the kind of voice Alec Guinness used for his portrayal of Fagin in Oliver Twist. And as he did so, he made that gesture best described as washing his hands with invisible soap. Gervais wouldn't have known that any of our team were Jewish, so I didn't take the outburst personally. But it was still intriguing, a little embarrassing, and it raised a host of issues. Most of all, I still find it surprising how casual and relaxed he was about displaying such unambiguous anti-Semitism in public, at a time when his career, as both an actor and darling of the chat show circuit, was in the ascendant. I'm sure Gervais would deny any accusations of anti-Semitism. I'm doubly sure that, if only on the law of averages for someone in the comedy business, he could legitimately claim that some of his best friends are Jewish. He was also in his pomp, universally loved, and in the epicentre of the build-em-up cycle of fame. So it's puzzling to know where this bile came from. Since that night in 2002, Gervais's public persona has usually been given a free pass 
for the ironic context with which he frames contentious or edgy issues. And as a free speech advocate, if not absolutist, I'm fine with this. But in expressing his anger to four people whose greatest crime was to win a quiz with such a blatantly racist outburst, I failed then, as I fail now, to see any trace of that celebrated irony. But what do you think? That was The Quiz Night, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this episode, then please like and subscribe on Acast, or write a review wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 32. The Sketch. A 90-second comedy sketch typed on two sheets of A4 paper, folded and sealed in a yellowing registered envelope. There is a handwritten note on the outside, giving the date of the 24th of January 1991, and the subject of its contents intriguingly marked Rebel Cricketers slash Lithuania. As is fairly well known, sending a sealed registered envelope to yourself containing your precious work was once the universal method of ensuring copyright of your intellectual property. Jazz rock legend Steely Dan even referred to this, albeit metaphorically, in their song Ricky Don't Lose That Number. In the autumn of 1990, I sat for the first time in a cramped and shabby room with another 30 or so equally cramped and shabby men. Although women weren't excluded, there were none to be seen, neither did I notice anyone who couldn't be described as white Caucasian. In the middle of the room sat a detached-looking, bespectacled man in his early thirties, wearing a thin woolen sweater and pressed chinos. He was a comedy producer with BBC Radio's Light Entertainment Department. His demeanour was, I was soon to learn, typical of someone in his position, suggesting that he would rather be anywhere than wasting his lunchtime by sitting in that room. At one o'clock, without announcing his name or saying hello, he got straight to the point. OK then, what have you got for me? Starting with the people nearest the door, the men in the room each spoke a sentence or two, and the man in the middle would mostly either shake his head or occasionally mutter, let's have a look. This was the Wednesday lunchtime open writers meeting for the BBC Radio 4 satirical comedy show Weekending. When I hear a tax on the licence fee and public broadcasting in general, I think back to that first meeting I attended. For all the talk of how difficult it was to make it as a comedy writer, it was then possible to walk into BBC Radio Light Entertainment at 16 Langham Street in London and tell the receptionist you were there for weekending. With no security checks or questions, they presented you with a temporary pass to go up to the writer's room on the first floor. Once there, 
you could pitch your idea to a real grumpy producer. No other national television or radio service in the world had anything like this level of access. And no commercial broadcaster would have devoted even the tiniest fraction of its budget to such an enterprise. The pitches came free and fast as they went clockwise round the room. Eventually, it was my turn to speak. Um, an examination board is considering the inclusion of works by Jackie Collins and Geoffrey Archer for A-level English literature. My sketch is a schoolboy being grilled in the headmaster's office after being found hiding a copy of Chaucer inside a paperback of Hollywood Wives. I stuttered while clutching a brown loose-leaf file containing the script. I knew this was no classic to match the dead parrot or fork handles, but I waited for the producer's reaction anyway. Let's have a look. Once the meeting was over, I handed over my typed script, and on Friday night heard it performed on the radio, with a repeat on Saturday afternoon. My name was read out during the credits as one of the many contributors to the show, and I danced around the room knowing I could now legitimately call myself a professional comedy writer. If week ending is remembered at all, it isn't mentioned in the same breath as classics like The Goon Show or Hancock's Half Hour. Throughout its three-decade run, it was often criticised for its sloppiness and lack of satirical bites, leading various wags to surmise that the show's title referred to the quality of its punchlines. But in its own way, Week Ending was the most important comedy show on radio. If a time machine could transport us back to that first visit to the writer's room, we might see, among others, Harry Hill, Stuart Lee, Patrick Marber, Richard Herring or Al Murray. Week Ending was the kindergarten of British light entertainment, where smart Alex pitching gags based on that week's news could chance their arms at becoming real comedy writers. Others with an early credit included Harry Enfield, Andy Hamilton, Linda Smith, Armando Iannucci, Richard Curtis, Clive Anderson, David Baddiel, Joe Brand and Simon Pegg. In other words, it's fair to say that without Weekending and its sink or swim open access, a lot of British TV, radio and film comedy from the past couple of decades might never have existed. As for me, having a sketch commissioned from my first visit to the Wednesday meeting proved both a blessing and a curse. Most writers attended for months on end before either receiving the thumbs up from whichever producer was playing God or admitting that comedy writing was maybe not for them. In my case, it was a painfully long and frustrating time before I got another credit on the show. This frustration made me give up on the meetings too early. If I'd had a knockback early on, I might have stayed the course and made it as a real comedy writer with a real comedy writer's drink problem. We should bear in mind that nobody at that open writers' meeting was in this for the money. For the pain of sweating over that week's newspapers, trying to crank out satirical material, the fee, if you were fortunate enough to have your material broadcast, was about £20 per minute for sketch material, or £12 for a one-liner. A separate cheque arrived a few days after the first, containing half that fee for the Saturday afternoon repeat, and, if you were lucky, 
another microscopic payment arrived if your material made it to the monthly BBC World Service compilation. When I hear tabloid complaints about the BBC's profligacy with licence payers' money, I can't help but remember those paltry checks. Could weekending exist today? Maybe or maybe not. In fact, there is still an open access BBC radio comedy called Newsjack. It's as patchy as its predecessor and a website with a submission portal has long replaced the Wednesday meeting. And sadly, 16 Langham Street and its first floor writer's room was demolished in 2005. But on the plus side, the BBC advertise access to Newsjack widely to the general public and as a consequence, its contributors are far more diverse. But the big sea change since Weekending's cancellation in 1998 is the mechanics of topical humour itself. When the press magnet, Robert Maxwell, fell off his boat in 1991, the Wednesday meeting was a rugby scrum to see who could get their Captain Bob gags onto the show. The producer came to me in the clockwise queue and I pitched the following one-liner for their opening news headlines. Robert Maxwell's body was air-freighted to Jerusalem in preparation for his Mount of Olives funeral. An Israeli government spokesman said that they were always grateful to receive a fat check in the post. There were no laughs, only a sharp intake of breath from several others in the room because they had all written a variation on the same fairly obvious gag. But it was mine that made it onto the show simply by saying it first. Such a scenario could never happen today. In a world of social media, jokes like this pop up on Twitter moments after any major news story breaks. A few minutes after that, the first cleverly photoshopped memes appear. And within an hour or two, the subject is considered old hat, fit only to be raised from the dead for that Friday's Have I Got News For You. That was The Sketch. Written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts and maybe leave a review. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 33. The Magazine. A copy of The Puffin Post, the magazine of the Puffin Club. An entire page is devoted to a theatrical production at the Young Vic in London, with a photo of me in costume. It was the first time I ever saw my name in print, an exciting and auspicious event, even though they misspelt Matthew with one T. It used to be simple with paperbacks. Pelican for textbooks, Penguin for novels or autobiography, Puffin for children. If the book was in any way flashy or salacious, it would appear in the Pan or New English Library imprint, the homes of Jacqueline Suzanne or James Hadley Chase. Such was the social and intellectual divide in paperback fiction 
that you knew without looking that Graham Greene was Penguin, whilst Ian Fleming was definitely Pan. When I was growing up, Puffin was children's books. Of course, by some aberration, my beloved Jennings and Molesworth were mostly published by the cheaper Armada, but in all other cases it had to be the junior Penguin imprint. In September 1969 we moved house. It was a straightforward journey about six miles north, but in every other way it was a move to another planet. My conscious life thus far had taken place in a modest but comfortable three-bedroomed council flat in Hackney. That we were moving to a semi-detached house in middle-class Woodford Green only tells part of the story. For a start, in Hackney, my fellow pupils were mostly either from West Indian or Greek Cypriot families. When I turned up at my new school on the edge of Epping Forest, I almost suffered snow-blindness from the universal whiteness of my new schoolmates. And this remained the case for the rest of my school days. Until I worked for a while in Latvia a few years ago, Woodford Green in the 1970s was the whitest place I ever saw. Being uprooted at ten was more traumatic than I would ever have admitted at the time. My closest friends disappeared from my life. I desperately missed the small gang of us who swam in hackney baths on most weekday nights after school, ignoring the various warning posters by bombing, ducking and swimming in the diving area. In Woodford Green, I didn't form new friendships easily. There was no more lonely feeling before or since than joining a primary school in the last year and failing to fit in with kids who had already forged their own lifelong bonds and Lord of the Flies hierarchies. I was friendless, bullied, and my schoolwork suffered. During my last term in Hackney, the headmaster wrote to my parents recommending that I needed extra tuition because I was far too ahead of the other kids to gain much from normal lessons. But at Woodford Green Primary, I fell so far behind that my teacher bluntly told my parents I was not grammar school material. My refuge was books. In those pre-decimal days, a puffin paperback cost three and six, the exact sum my grandmother used to slip me every Friday night after dinner, which I spent at the Angel Bookshop in Islington, or the W.H. Smith's in Notting Hill Gate, while my parents were busy buying or selling antiques. I'm not going to extol the virtues of Roald Dahl or Anthony Buckeridge here. Other people have done this to death, because the best thing I discovered in any puffin was the message at the back of the book inviting me to join the puffin club. A look at the puffin post, the quarterly journal of the puffin club, gives us a window into a virtual literary salon as sophisticated in its own way as the Bloomsbury Group. Its pages, its organised, admittedly London-centric events, its in-jokes and its implied knowledge of Aldous Huxley or the Brontes became a haven for all bookish put upon underachievers such as me as they prepared for the horrors of adolescence. In 1970, a modest announcement appeared in its pages. The club invited members to audition for the Puffin Players one Saturday afternoon with the intention of performing a double bill of new plays by the author Joan Aiken. 
Mum left my dad in charge of the antiques business to accompany me to a church hall in Waterloo, and on the way she prepared me for disappointment. There are going to be a lot of other children there, she said. Kids who had acting lessons or have been to stage school. She reminded me of my response in years to come, not simply because of its thought-through logic, but also for the completely uncharacteristic confidence with which, at the age of eleven, I delivered it. For a start, I said, most of them will be girls. Boys aren't interested in theatre. Also, I'll be better than nearly everyone else there. Why do you think they always get me to read something at the Christmas service at school, even though I'm Jewish? I've compared notes on this in the years since that bus ride to Waterloo. Outside of the Golders Green, Finchley and Ilford axis, every school had just one or two Jewish kids who, fighting to be heard at home, had no problem speaking loudly and articulately in public. We were always roped into the school Christmas service, and, in taking account of our heathen disregard for the true Saviour, ended up reading Isaiah chapter 9. That's the bit of the Old Testament which predicts the coming of the Messiah without giving any names, dates or specifics. The audition went as predicted. Lots of girls there with cut glass accents and a couple of smart-assed boys, a bit like me. They cast me as the dashing young hero in the first play, The King Who Declared War on the Animals, directed by Joan Aiken's daughter Lisa. My only disappointment here was that the other play, called Winter Thing, looked far more interesting and grown up, but Winter Thing needed an older teenage cast. My debut as a serious method actor would have to wait. Every weekend I made my way to Waterloo to rehearse and hang out with my new best friends. They all seemed to have the nicely spoken and mannered demeanour of children educated privately. It might have been that some of them saw me as the chippy member of the company, the one played by Jack Wilde rather than Mark Lester. But what we all had in common was reading. Instead of tediously repetitive banter about Spurs or Arsenal, it was more like, Have you read any H.G. Wells? No, not just the sci-fi stuff. Try Mr. Polly, it's really very good. The King Who Declared War on the Animals debuted for one night only at the Young Vic during its inaugural season in late 1970. The audience loved it because audiences full of mums and dads generally love anything their children do. But there were follow-up performances in various art centres and libraries in the outer reaches of South London, so we must have been doing something right. Within a year or two, I outgrew Puffin Books and discovered Agatha Christie and Ray Bradbury with a side order of Richard Allen's Skinhead series. My last interaction with the Puffin Club was at a tea party in early 1972 at the Notting Hill flat of Puffin's editor-in-chief, K. Webb. By this time, I had found my own group of friends at home. Geeks and misfits who I could sit with during break times as we wondered why girls didn't know we existed. But at least I was no longer being bullied. That was The Magazine, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 34. Tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea. A DVD bought about 15 years ago from a film website based in the Czech Republic. I paid £10 online, happily giving my credit card details without being able to read any of the Czech terms or conditions. Such was my desperation to own this DVD that I was fully prepared to have my bank account ransacked by a criminal gang in Tibitsa in order to possess it. And when the disc arrived, navigating the Czech menu to bring up the English subtitles involved a lot of trial and error. How does a film achieve cult status? It's hard to know because cult has become a lazy term almost devoid of meaning. Nowadays, it is often no more than marketing shorthand for This is an important and often overlooked example of the art of cinema. That this is the case only goes to prove that the film you are about to watch can only be appreciated by the finest and most sophisticated minds. Minds rather like yours. We've seen the term cult applied to the work of John Waters or Roger Corman or to the cheap sexploitation flicks of Russ Mayer. I know they all have their fans, but the reality of sitting through a film by, for example, Russ Mayer, is to endure a badly made, unfunny, appallingly acted piece of nonsense, with few redeeming features. Ed Wood is another director who has achieved cult status purely by directing films which are so bad, they're bad. This makes it all the more gratifying when a real cult film comes along. At 9.35 on the 16th of January 1982, BBC Two screened a Czech comedy in its Graveyard Foreign Language Film International slot. Realising that no programme screened on Saturday night could ever compete with Match of the Day followed by Parkinson, it probably didn't matter to the BBC schedulers what the film was, because hardly anyone would be watching. But this film was different. Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea is a 1977 science fiction comedy from the then Socialist Republic of Czechoslovakia. It has never been on public release in the UK, making do with occasional screenings at science fiction festivals that either go for the obscure or because they can't afford a good print of Spaceballs. But look up the film on IMDb and you will mostly see nothing but 9 or 10 star reviews. And then you will realise that something else is going on. Something quite wonderful from the way many of these reviews open. What you will see is a film achieving cult status. One review begins like this. This is a film I saw just once on BBC Two on a Saturday night. In order not to watch Dallas, I thought I'd watch the first half hour of the film and then turn over for Match of the Day. Match of the Day never got a look in.
and another starts, I finally found this film on the web, so it wasn't just my imagination. I rank this amongst the very best films I've ever seen. I saw it 25 to 30 years ago on British TV as part of what must have been a foreign film series on BBC Two. On and on they go, with reviewers desperate to see the film again. That it should be remembered from a single showing on BBC Two decades earlier and never repeated is one thing. For it also to leave such an indelible mark on the lives of those, like me, lucky enough to be there for it, fulfils the definition of a genuine cult film, seen by a tiny audience whose members end up obsessing over it alone for years until they find each other via the internet. Watching the film now, despite looking a little dated, it holds up pretty well. The plot is as convoluted as we can expect from a time travel farce. It's set in the 1990s. The world is at peace and people take holidays by travelling back in time to great events in history. A group of Nazis steal a now-defunct neutron bomb from a museum and travel to 1941 where they try to present it to Hitler. The plot also involves identical twins, swapped suitcases, anti-aging pills and an avant-garde dance troupe. But don't take my word for it. Since risking my family's financial security on buying the DVD, the film has surfaced on YouTube and, as with IMDb, the first comment we see below the film says, I honestly can't believe I found this film after seeing it one night in the early 80s, occasionally thinking about it ever since, and then dedicating a whole night to tracking it down. I can't wait to watch this again. In other words, this is a film that is treasured beyond those with a special interest in Eastern European cinema. Its semi-mythical status comes from obsessives like me, who saw it once and were desperate to see it again. And in the barren years after 1982 until the DVD release, this combination of quality and scarcity created a genuine cult. But just as cult status can be bestowed, it can quickly be revoked. In 1972, my parents announced that on the following Saturday night, we would all be going to the classic Chelsea on King's Road to see a five-year-old film none of their three sons had ever heard of. They were quite insistent about this, and that night was memorable, partly because it was the last time my entire family went to the cinema together, and partly because the film we saw was Mel Brooks' comedy, The Producers. Despite winning a 1967 Oscar for Best Screenplay, The Producers never received a UK release, and it's easy to see why. Coming barely two decades after the Second World War, the people who run the film industry veered between loving the producers and a well-founded fear that a comedy centering on a musical called Springtime for Hitler was box office poison. In the US, its release was limited and its popularity grew as audiences discovered it for themselves. The producers became a cult film, a sleeper hit, but in the UK it was virtually unknown. The only country where it was an immediate hit was Sweden. Dubbed into the local language, 
it was released under the name Springtime for Hitler. Such was its success that subsequent Mel Brooks releases bore the titles Springtime for the Sheriff, Springtime for Frankenstein, Springtime for Silent Movies and so on. Watching the producers in Chelsea that night, I witnessed an entire cinema audience doubled up and helpless with laughter. The following Monday, I tried explaining it to my school friends, telling them they needed to produce a flop Broadway show, so they put on a musical about Hitler, to be met by uncomprehending indifference. Three years later, Mel Brooks released Blazing Saddles, and those same friends were now discussing farting cowboys, men punching horses and little else. In the slipstream of Blazing Saddles, the producers was rediscovered via TV showings. The mega-hit musical followed some years later, and the original film, stripped of its cult status, is now an established part of our cultural life. As for me, I felt slightly cheated. Until Blazing Saddles, the genius of Mel Brooks was something known to very few people I knew outside of my family. I know there are people out there who were fans of Nick Drake before he died, or the Velvet Underground before their breakup. People who loved their individual voice, and then watched with sorrow as they went from tortured artists to corporate brand. Like me, they probably pined for the days when they could feel as if they alone had been let in on a marvellous secret. I doubt whether Yindrich Pollack, the director of Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea, will ever reach the dizzy heights of fame achieved by Mel Brooks. He died in 2003, but his brilliant film lives on, quietly prized by those lucky enough to have been randomly watching BBC Two one Saturday night over 40 years ago. That was Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not click like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 35. The Floppy Disk Drive. The large bottom drawer of my desk is a rarely opened graveyard of IT paraphernalia. Network cables, three palm pilots, obsolete phone chargers, MIDI cables, a mini scanner, an unusable graphics tablet, some old hard drives and one floppy disk drive. The idea is still that I never know when something in there might prove useful, even though they rarely do. I'll happily wait for the Palm Pilots to become hipsters' collector's items, but the floppy drive has been used in the past whenever I've needed to read an old three-and-a-half-inch disk. It also has sentimental value, being the sole remaining component of the first computer I ever built from scratch, the one that helped bring an end to my comedy career. Sometime in the early 1990s, my brother John had a clear-out and gave me his old Apple Mac, 
with a printer along with a massive 100 megabyte hard drive full of useful software. For someone like me, who still thought pocket calculators were a pretty neat idea, this was a godsend, to the extent that for our forthcoming Edinburgh Fringe show, I wrote all the lyrics, composed the music, and even designed the poster on this one little box. Three years later, it needed repairing at an extortionate cost, and a year after that it gave up the ghost completely. I simply couldn't afford another repair and went back to using the portable typewriter, until one day I discovered that I could build a new PC for a lot less than the repair bill for the Apple Mac. I started by getting a book on how to build computers out of the library. Reading back that last sentence tells me how times have changed since the mid-90s. I still often read the old analogue way, but haven't consulted a dead tree book to do anything technical or practical for over two decades. It took a few visits to Tottenham Court Road, a lot of blind alleys, some agonising over the correct SIMS, CPU, DIP switches, PSU, BIOS configuration and the rest. And over the next fortnight, I obsessively built and dismantled the thing about four times until one day I turned it on and let out a cheer when the magical Windows 95 symbol appeared. For surprisingly little money, I had a super-fast Pentium PC with an even more massive one gigabyte hard drive. Can you build me one? A friend asked a couple of weeks later. I'll pay you. As is the way with these things, the second PC took about two hours to build, and the third, and now I had a small sideline in building bespoke PCs that was never going to threaten the revenue streams of Dell or HP, but put a few extra quid a month into my back pocket. A couple more years passed, and one evening, I was in that comfort zone we call a pub quiz, sitting next to my brother Andrew. This was early 1999, during the first dot-com boom, when tech companies were either expanding rapidly or appearing out of nowhere. Do you know any systems administrators? We've just had to sack our fourth one in a row because he's useless, Andrew said to me during the first interval. How would I know any systems administrators? I'm a comedy a cappella singer. I replied. I was by now on my third point, the one that makes me bold. That's a shame, he said. We're desperate. Could I do it? I asked after a pause. Some context. I already sensed that my comedy career was drawing to a close. We were still getting gigs and getting laughs, but by now anyone capable of making me rich and famous had already seen the act. And looking back now, although I would never have admitted this to myself at the time, I was getting bored and frustrated. A few years earlier, taking the stage at a comedy club, with its rush of adrenaline and the not knowing what would happen, seemed like the most thrilling way anyone could occupy their time. But by this stage, the sensation of extracting laughs from an audience was akin to a veteran hooker satisfying a client. Professional and efficient, certainly but lacking any sense of purpose other than to get the job done. In addition, there was the matter of my oldest brother John, who was by now terminally ill. No, I wasn't broken-hearted. That would all come later. And I didn't find it too hard to get through the day, because life goes on. 
but I've always thought that in order to write funny, it was necessary to be able to think funny. The Hollywood director Ernst Lubitsch put it more eloquently when he said, No one can do comedy unless they've got a circus in their head. Well, by now, my circus had left town. With all the tumblers and clowns working in telesales and frantically calling their agents. Could I do it? I repeated. Would you want it? said Andrew. What does it involve? He went into some detail and then almost apologetically told me how much I could expect to earn. To Andrew, a hotshot software developer and consultant, with years of lucrative geekery under his belt, the amount was a pittance. To me, it was a way out of performing comedy. A few days later, I was in a suit meeting my future line manager in a swanky office off Bishopsgate. Considering how my professional experience in the cutthroat world of financial tech was, until now, zero, I was surprised at how eagerly and how much he sold the job to me. And if all goes well, a couple of months down the line, we'll send you to our head office in Palo Alto for a few weeks, he said. I had a drink with Andrew in a nearby pub afterwards, and, despite the interview going well, I still fretted about how badly I'd come across. Don't worry, said Andrew, you've got the job. Have I? How can you be so sure? Because they're desperate, and because they think they're getting a cheaper version of me, he said. Thanks to my needing a new PC years earlier to create material for the comedy circuit, I ended up with a new career. The Draylon Underground soldiered on until the end of 2000, grinding to a halt along with the 20th century. Like ABBA, the group stayed friends and never formally broke up, even performing a few reunion gigs over the years, including at my own wedding. But our life on the comedy circuit was over. I missed the fun and camaraderie of being in a gang. I missed the creative hit of writing and rehearsing. But I didn't miss the performing. A few weeks after my IT career began, a rather dull British software house based in South London bought out my exciting, cool, new Silicon Valley-based employer. But the manager who interviewed me was true to his word, because I did get to work for a few weeks at their head office. But not in Palo Alto. It was in Wimbledon. That was The Floppy Disk Drive, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe leave a review. And I'll see you next time.